Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And I trust that you have your Bible already open to John chapter 9. That's where we're going to study this morning together. It's a bit of a long text, and so I want to encourage you right up front to hang in there with me. In the first service, I noticed that in the middle section of this message, there were some eyes glazing over. It's like the worst fear of a, of a preacher. And uh, the irony wasn't lost on me that this passage about Jesus giving sight to the blind, I was somehow managing <laughs> to glaze eyes over. Not a good thing, so I'll do my best, uh, but ultimately this passage preaches for itself, just reading it, and uh, I'm excited to look at it with you. I want to say here at the outset that it's possible to have 20-20 vision and to see nothing. Think about that. It's, it's possible to have 20-20 vision and actually see nothing. Now, we know that this could be true. For example, in a cave where it's pitch black and you have no lamp or no flashlight, you may not be able to see your hand right in front of your face. But more to our purposes this morning, there's a way in which this statement can be true in connection to the will, a person's willingness to see, willingness to behold. How many of you guys in here are willing to admit that you know who Ray Stevens is? Anybody? All right. A good number in the crowd. Very good. Good. Ray Stevens. Uh, He put out a song in 1970 that went to the top of the charts. It was called Everything is Beautiful. I was not born yet. I looked it up this week, though. Perhaps you remember uh, this song. It was about basically the, the beauty in this world. There's a lot of beauty in this world. There's a lot of beauty in people, but you have to be willing to see it. And Midway through, there is this line that goes like this. There is none so blind as he who will not see. There is none so blind as he who will not see. But perhaps the most profound blindness is the blindness of choice. A stubbornness, a stubborn unwillingness to see what is clear right in front of you. What is obvious right in front of your face. And so spiritually speaking, we know that this stems from the heart, from a heart that is hard. This is why God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says this to the people of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 5. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes, you have physical eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not, but this people... Jeremiah writes, has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside. They have gone away. My friends, it's possible to have 20-20 vision and see nothing, to be mired in a perpetual state of blindness. But on the flip side, we can say amen to this. It's possible to be blind from birth and see God and his world in HD. According to his grace. With that, let's look together at John chapter 9. We looked at the first seven verses last week, and 
saw how Jesus corrected some really bad theology. We'll pause here for a moment again this morning underneath a beautiful understanding that Jesus liberates. Jesus liberates. He is the great liberator of souls. Here he liberates this man's eyes physically that he might actually see. But before he does that, he actually liberates his men from some bad theology. Again, note it with me, verses 2 and 3, that the disciples see this guy and only see him as a test case for theological debate. Like, which one of them sinned and caused this man to be born blind? And Jesus says, their sin had nothing to do with it. The the sin of the parents, the, the sin of this man has nothing to do with the fact that God, according to his providence, caused this man to be born blind. Had nothing to do with it. But I want you to see something further here. I want you to notice what Jesus further corrects in verses 4 and 5. Check out your text. Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what is Jesus saying here? My friends, I think what Jesus is doing is bringing a further corrective to the instincts of the disciples who saw this man as a test case for theological debate. My friends, understand that good theology, jot this down perhaps, good theology will never be able to stand still long. Why? Because good theology hits the head and then makes its way to the heart and moves the person into action. My friends, understand there is a time and place for theological debate. It can be very good and very helpful, but ultimately good theology moves to the feet, moves to the hands. It moves outward to say, how can I help? So Jesus brings a corrective. As we see the brokenness of this world, may it not just cause us to sit and talk. You guys with me? To sit and talk. Theological banter. It can be okay right, and helpful in its place. But ultimately, our understanding of God and his gospel should move us out. Amen? You guys with me? Should move us out. And this is exactly what Jesus does. So note with me the very next words of the text. Verse 6, having said these things, having said, look, the night is coming. The time is short, as it were. What does Jesus do? He models this behavior. He moves toward this man who has been born blind in this plight. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Great spot for an amen. (laughs) Gracious, isn't this beautiful? This man comes back seeing. For the first time in his life, he comes back seeing. So Jesus liberates this man from his physical blindness. What a moment. What a moment. And I want us just to pause here for a moment and just rejoice in our great Savior. He is so good, is he not? He is so good. But perhaps you have questions here. Why did Jesus do it this way? We know that Jesus has already spoken a healing 
We've already seen Jesus heal people from a distance. He doesn't even have to be in the same town to heal someone. So why here in this moment does Jesus stoop down, make clay, put it over this guy's eyes, and tell him to go wash in the pool of Siloam? I will say right up front that we don't know with 100% certainty why Jesus does it this way because the text doesn't elaborate, doesn't tell us, but I think we can make an educated guess rooted in the context. What we have learned over the course of these last couple of months is that the context of this whole scene, the background of these chapters 7, 8, and 9 is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. We've talked about the fact that there were two primary rituals that went on in the temple during the Feast of Booths. One was a water ritual. The other was a light ritual. I think what Jesus is doing is bringing those two together in the man who's been born blind. And he's presenting himself to everyone who's watching, who is willing to see, I am the provision of God, the ultimate provision of God. So remember what Jesus did in John chapter 7 when he stood up in the temple on that last great day and said, if, ever, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Remember that? And that was in context of what? That ritual that the priest would take the pitcher and march down with a crowd of people to the pool of Siloam. Interesting. And dip that pitcher into the pool of Siloam and bring it back to the temple and then pour it out ceremoniously on the altar. And when he did that, the people would chant glory to God for his provision. From Old Testament times all the way to today, God has always provided. And it's in that context that Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty of soul, come to me and drink. Then we move to chapter 8. What does Jesus claim to be in chapter 8? In chapter 8, he claims to be the light of the world. Undoubtedly, he's connecting it to, he's tethering it to this other ritual that took place in the temple during the Feast of Booths that related to these four massive candelabras that were lit every day. It was a ritual lighting. So Jesus, tethering into that, says, I am the light of the world. So these two images that speak of God's provision for his people, Jesus is saying, I'm it. It all points to me. I am the ultimate provision of God for the needs of your soul. You're thirsty. You're also blind. And I think in this moment, with this man who was born blind, Jesus kind of brings it all together. All right? I think we can see that via context. Jesus brings it all together in a person to say, just like this. So he's going to turn the light on for this guy. As the light of the world, he turns the light on for him. He sends him to the pool of Siloam, reminding them he's the living water as well. And the man comes back seeing. Amen? What a blessing this is. What a wonderful Savior we serve. Now, having said all of that, I want us to immerse back into the story, okay? Think about this man returning from the pool of Siloam, looking around. Can you imagine this guy? Just think about it. Looking around, taking it all, like soaking it in. Let me ask you a question. What should have happened in that moment? Right! That's exactly what should have happened. What did she say? She said, rejoice. That's what should have happened. It should have been jubilation, right? Are you guys with me? Everybody that knew this guy, he's a blind beggar from birth, but now suddenly he can see. It should have been jubilation. It should have been celebration, perhaps even anticipation. 
right? Because there were explicit prophecies from the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah that he would open the eyes of the blind. There should have been anticipation. Perhaps this Jesus really is the Messiah. Moreover, how about this one? How about exploration? You guys with me? Think. Okay, please don't glaze over. <laughs> Think with me. How about exploration? How about someone grabbing this guy and saying, like, you've got to see some stuff, man. Let's go to the temple. Let, let's go to the olive grove. Let's go to the Mediterranean. See, you have to see a sunrise on the Mediterranean. But guess what happens? Instead of celebration, jubilation, anticipation, maybe even exploration, what happens? Litigation. <laughs> Litigation. Is, isn't that telling with regard to the difference between Jesus and man-made religion? I want you to see this. My friends, as we walk through this text, I want you to see this. Jesus liberates, but the Pharisees litigate. Beginning in verse 8, you might say, well, we're not at the Pharisees yet. Fair, fair point. It's the neighbors. We're not going to be too hard on the neighbors. But ultimately, I think you see, even with the neighbors, they should have been more excited for this guy. Instead, they're all about investigation. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. It's me. Okay, stop the debate. It's me. Verse 10. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Couldn't see. <laughs> he didn't know where Jesus went. So the neighbors question. They're perhaps a little bit confused. And in fairness to them, they've never seen him like this. And it's all so sudden. So they're trying to get their minds around it. In their confusion, what do they do? They take him to the authorities. Instead of just going, okay, so here's where I go. Like, we're not going to be too hard on the neighbors, but we should be a little disappointed, right? They should have said, all right, well, whatever happened, this is awesome. This is great, bro. Let's see some stuff together. But they don't do that. They take him to the authorities. It's litigation time. Verse 13. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. What you're going to find out is that a lot of people are asking him this, him this question over and over. <laughs> how did it happen? How did it happen? And they missed the who. They missed the who, man. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He, Jesus, put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Does that surprise you? That's like the one card in their deck, right? The one trump card that they've got. Well, it was the Sabbath. So they're kind of hedging on this already. Whatever happens, we're going to nail them on the Sabbath thing. Nothing good happens, it seems, for them on the Sabbath. 
nothing good can happen. By the way, this is a reminder, again, the distinction between Jesus and man-made religion, what they had built around the Sabbath was pure human thought, and they botched it all together, right? Jesus will say in the Gospel of Mark, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You guys have built something that God never intended. It's a travesty. By the way, perhaps this is the direct reason why Jesus made the paste because he knew that would rile them up with regard to the Sabbath. So perhaps that's the reason. Either way, these guys are upset. They're hedging on the Sabbath. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees, this is interesting, a little twist in the tale, said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So some of the Pharisees are at least willing to go this far to say, you know what, perhaps we need to stop throwing that trump card out there and just evaluate some stuff because the data on Jesus as the Messiah is just piling up. It's piling up. Really? We're going to pull that one out again, guys? How is he able to do this? So verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? since he has opened your eyes. And he said, he is a prophet. Now let's just pause right here for a moment. How many of you guys remember seeing commercials? I haven't seen them much recently, but commercials about transition lenses. Remember that? When those were a big deal? Like you don't need two pair of glasses, you just need one. When you go out in the direct sunlight, your, your lenses actually start turning dark. You know what I'm talking about? I said that in the first service and everybody was like, they were already glazing. <laughs> so maybe they're not a thing anymore. I don't know. Maybe they're not a thing. But here's the deal. You know the concept, right? Here's why I say this. As you see this litigation develop, what you're going to see is for the Pharisees, their eyes, their lenses are just going to get progressively darker, darker and darker. But this man whose physical eyes have now been opened, his lenses are going to get progressively clear. And it's beautiful to watch, okay? So just watch it as we walk through this, te- uh, through this text. At this juncture, it's pretty clear that someone, maybe with a loud voice, says, I don't believe it actually happened. We need to go back to the basics. I don't believe this actually happened. This guy was never blind. I don't, I don't remember seeing him. So verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until... They call the parents of the man who had received his sight. So they go and fetch the parents. Verse 19, and ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now John helps us to see a fuller picture in these parentheses, verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So what happens here? Inside this litigation, they call for the parents 
And the parents come, and all they do is establish the facts of the case. And it's kind of cool. They establish the facts. So you can just sort of imagine them standing there, and the, and the Pharisees go, like, is this your, your son? Is, is this your boy? And they say, yes, that's our son. Was he blind from birth? Yes, he's been blind from birth. Well, how does he now see? We don't know. It's almost like they've got their attorney with them, and the, the attorney's like, you don't have to answer that. You don't have to answer that, right? And so they say, he's of age, ask him. Now, we know from the text that they're afraid. They're afraid to speak directly about Jesus because they know that that loses all position with regard to the synagogue, which was the central gathering place in this religious society. So they put it on the son, ask him. So for the second time, verse 24, they called the man who had been blind, so here I want to say that they employ some enhanced interrogation tactics. They don't waterboard him or anything, but they do get more intense. You'll see the temperature rise, but it doesn't work. Why? They fail to take into consideration the power of true change, of true change in a life. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. That was simply an oath, a common Jewish oath at the time, perhaps akin to us saying, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They're saying to him, like, for real this time, be honest. We know that this man is a sinner. Verse 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Isn't this great? <laughs> One thing I do know, there's a lot that I don't, and I'm willing to admit that, but one thing I do know is that earlier today I was blind, and now I see. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Check out his response. I mean, this dude who's been marginalized, his whole life is getting bold. <laughs> He's getting bold. And I, I guarantee you, these Pharisees are taken back by him. He answered, verse 27, I have told you already, and you would not listen. How true, how true. They were willfully blind. Why do you want to hear it again? Note this line. Do you also want to become his disciples? Do you guys secretly want to become his disciples? Is that why you're so interested in this? Verse 28, and they reviled him. They didn't like that, for sure. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Perhaps, again, a, a reference to the rumor that Jesus was illegitimate. Of course, they deny the virgin birth. They deny everything about him. They're, they're not willing to see. So now, man, he gets even more bold. Verse 30, can't you just see it happening? The, the, their, their lenses are getting darker. His lenses are getting clearer. He puts together this guy who's never been to school, He's been relegated because of his blindness in that culture to being a beggar. He puts together a sound argument. I mean, this is good argumentation. 
Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So what do they do? Do they wrestle with his logic? No. They, they pull a classic maneuver from an authoritative position. They just hurl an insult and cast him out. Verse 34, they answer him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now, what's interesting, I, I loved what D.A. Carson writes on this point. Hear this. He writes, stung by the impertinence of this untrained member of the common herd, arguing with them and besting them at their own game, they opt for personal abuse instead of even-handed evaluation. In so doing, listen to this, they unwittingly confirm one of the points their interrogation aimed to overthrow. They say, you were steeped in sin at birth. And that is a cruel reference to the man's congenital blindness. So, the man was born blind, after all. So, Jesus must have opened his eyes. But the irony of their rage quite escapes them. So great is their own blindness. The Pharisees litigate. But here's the cool thing. It actually does the opposite of what they intended to do. It does the opposite. They hope to invalidate this scene in order to suppress any more talk about Jesus. But what they actually do is establish the facts of the case. They're undeniable, bringing in the parents, asking this guy four or five times. Even their insults at the end, they establish the facts of the case. But then secondly, they cause the onlook, onlookers to move toward the conclusion that he just might be the Messiah. Isn't this beautiful? The plan of God. So they kick him out of the synagogue. This guy who is now seeing for the first time, they kick him out of the synagogue. But he's not abandoned. Even though he would have been abandoned at that point in his culture, he's not abandoned by the person that really matters. Check out verse 35. This is so good. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. What do you notice there? Have you noticed this before? And this hit me so hard this week. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. <laughs> Isn't that good? Because Jesus opened his eyes physically. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What a phenomenal moment. So Jesus liberates, the Pharisees litigate, but now Jesus illuminates the whole picture. He makes it all come together with absolute clarity, starting with, the man who was born blind. Now here, in conclusion, he opens the spiritual eyes of this man. He heals his heart, as it were. 
So he comes to him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? What is that? Direct reference to the Messiah. This title, Son of Man, it's heavily laden with messianic overtones from the Old Testament beginning in Daniel 7 and beyond where God had promised to give, the Ancient of Days would give the kingdom to one like the Son of Man. When Jesus uses this title, it's not only a link to his humanity as both God and man, but it's also a direct, direct claim to be the Messiah. So he says, do you know, do you believe in the Messiah? And this man who's prepared, he's ready. He's been transformed and is progressively seeing with spiritual eyes, says, where is he? that I might see and believe. And Jesus says, you're looking at him. I'm right here. And the man believes and he worships. So Jesus illuminates this man spiritually. But then secondly, we see here that he reveals in his being the light of the world in his illumination, he reveals the blindness of the Pharisees. So verse 39 Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What does this mean? Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world. For judgment I came into this world. Now, we know already from John chapter 3 that Jesus has not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So what, what does John mean here? What does Jesus mean here? What Jesus means here is that his presence brings about a, a kind of fault line, that there's no middle ground with Jesus. He is either your Savior or He is your judge. You either trust in Him as the cure or you are doomed to be damned. So there's no middle ground. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. And so this is what He means when He says, I bring judgment. So those who are blind, truly blind, are able to see. Those who are willing to acknowledge is what Jesus is saying in light of this spiritual blindness. Those who are willing to acknowledge, I, I can't see. I need help. I am spiritually blind. Jesus can open those eyes. But those who think they see, those who believe they have it all together, that they are right with God based on their own merit or based on their own ethnicity or whatever, Jesus says, I'm judgment to them. My presence is judgment to them. So as the only Savior, he's the only cure, my friends. The only cure. Peter will later talk about this in terms of Jesus being the cornerstone, who is also the stone of stumbling. He is the foundation of the gospel, his person and his work. But he's also the one that people trip over. If they reject him, they reject God. They reject the gospel. Perhaps a natural illustration helps. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. This is what Jesus is saying. Those that are willing to acknowledge, I'm a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, can see, can see. 
and be saved. But those who are unwilling, those who are mired in their own pride are blind. And this is a willful blindness that is greater than any kind of physical blindness. And the tragedy, my friends, of this moment, the tragedy is that it's not just this moment. For all of the Gospel of John, all of the narrative about Jesus kind of collapses into this moment, right? What has Jesus already done? He's already declared himself as the divine Son of God. He's already demonstrated his divinity in multiple ways. We could talk about them for some time, turning water to wine, walking on water, stilling a storm with his word, feeding 5,000 people, healing people. He's demonstrated with absolute clarity his deity, that he is supernatural. He is God in the flesh. Moreover, he's taught with an authority that no one had ever seen before. He's also declared his purpose in his messiahship through sound reason and debate. Even in the, the last chapter, he invited those questions, right? He said, does anyone here have any reason why you can convict me of sin? They, they want to just hurl that out. We know he's a sinner, but Jesus actually puts it on them. Anybody got anything? Any evidence you want to bring forward? And no one can. What has Jesus done? He has proved it time and time, again, time, and time, and time again. He has proved that he is the divine son of God. So those who are willing to see can see. But those who are willfully blind will not. Jesus liberates, my friends, but the Pharisees litigate. Why? They won't see. They refuse. They refuse. And so Jesus illuminates the whole picture for them, but also for us. So here as we wrap this up, as we conclude, I want you to walk away with three primary things. Amongst the other things, perhaps, that you've been encouraged by in this text, walk away with these. First of all, a warning, a warning to those who think they see but are in fact trusting in themselves and something other than Jesus. Please hear me. Almost finished. This is a warning that this text gives, it brings to us, to those who think they see but are in fact trusting in themselves and something other than Jesus. My friends, there is none so blind as those who will not see. Have you recognized, friends, have you recognized that you are a sinner and that only Jesus can save you? Has God brought you to that place of repentance and faith whereby you looked to Jesus and said, I believe like this man and worshiped. I'm bringing nothing I'm not trusting in anything that I could do or anything that I think I could offer for my own salvation as merit as to why God should accept me, why God should bring me into heaven. But rather, you have repented of all of that to place your faith and trust in Christ alone. Is that you? There's a warning here inherent to this text. Don't be like the Pharisees. They say, we're good. We're good. We've got it all together. God will surely accept me because of these reasons. There's a warning here. 
Don't trust in yourself. Cast all of your trust on Christ alone. Secondly, there's a call to worship. A call to worship a Savior who sees, seeks, and saves the lost. Amen? A call to worship. This is what John Newton did when he said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Amazing. It's amazing grace. I'm so thankful that this brother, that we will get to see and meet in heaven someday. I'm so thankful that on this first day, in his first life here on this planet, in which he could see with his physical eyes that he didn't just have to see the angry, frustrated eyes of the Pharisees. But by the end of the day, he was able to look into the piercing gaze, the loving gaze of the Son of God because Jesus sought him out. Amen? He sought him out. I hope that we see this in this text. This is like Luke 15 in action, verse 35. This God who searches for the, for the coin, right? The, the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. The father who from the porch leaps off of it and runs to greet the repentant returning son. This is God. He's a pursuing God. If you are saved today, it's because he pursued you. Amen? That was a great thought for an amen. You're saved because he came after you. He tracked you down. He found you. And he overwhelmed you with his mercy and grace. What a blessing this is. There is inherent here a call to worship. Praise God for a Savior who sees, seeks, saves the lost. And then lastly, I just want to encourage you all with regard to your witness those of you that are able to say with confidence, I know, I know Jesus. I know where I'm at with God. I want to say to you, don't underestimate the power of your simple testimony that God has changed you. Don't underestimate that. Listen, you, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar. You don't have to be the greatest debater on earth. You don't have to be the smartest person in the conversation in order to share your faith. In fact, sometimes it's helpful to not be. In this moment, what does this guy say? There's a lot I don't know. There's one thing I do know. I was blind. Now I see. You know what, my friends? That'll preach. Amen? <laughs> That'll preach. Listen, we need good apologists. We have good apologists in this building right now. Adam and Casey and others, Joel, Matt. We have good apologists, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for those that have a quick, sharp mind and can debate and talk and with care share the faith. But listen, you don't have to be the Apostle Paul to share with your neighbor, to share with your coworker share with your family member. Perhaps all God wants you to say, my friends, to start this conversation is this. I was blind and now I see. 
I was once this way, and God came in, and he transformed me. I have eyes to see stuff that I never saw before. I have a heart for things I never had before. It's as simple as that. Jesus changes people, amen? He's changed you, and if he has, just say it. Just say it. Get it out there. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was bound, but now I'm free. God, thank you so much for your great grace. You are so good. I'm so thankful for this story. I'm so thankful for this blind man who now sees. I'm so thankful that I, along with my brothers and sisters, will get to meet him one day and together with him marvel at you, God, for your amazing grace. I pray, God, that if there are people here that don't know for sure that they are yours, I pray that you would cause them to have a conversation. I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they might know this transforming power of the gospel. And I pray for those that know you. I pray that you would cause us to worship you and share with others what you've done. You are worthy of that. So we thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.